Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. So if you are new with us, if you haven't been here over the last three or four weeks, we've been going through a book study on uh, the Old Testament prophet Hosea, which has introduced some really interesting uh, topics for us. Specifically, if we're looking through the book of Hosea, it breaks down into an introduction in Hosea chapters one through three. And in this section, we have uh, what seems to be two different accounts Uh, biographical accounts, if you will, of Hosea and his marriage to Gomer. In chapter one, Hosea is commanded to go and to marry a woman of whoredom or a woman of um, immorality or a woman of harlotry. The way that 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 term is translated is is difficult, although the the intent seems to be that this woman has questionable uh, sexual practices, perhaps, or it could just be that she, like most Israelites at this time, were following other gods. They were going away from Yahweh. They were going away from the God of Israel to follow after pagan gods, and God tells Hosea to go and to marry this woman. In chapter one, they have three kids. They have a kid named Jezreel. They have a little girl named Not Pitied or Not Compassioned, and they have Uh, another boy named Not My People. We learned in that chapter, this is a sign act, a prophetic sign act where Hosea and his marriage to Gomer and their kids are symbolically acting out to the people of Israel what God is thinking about his people, namely that they are faithless, that they are going in the opposite direction from him, and that the relationship that he has with these people is scorned. It's fractured. It's difficult, if nothing else. In chapter two, last week, we saw an allegory or a poem where uh, God is explaining this in even more graphic terms. And then in tonight, in chapter three, we're going to end up this, um, this time of introduction, but we're going to see again Hosea in his interaction with Gomer. Just for kicks and giggles, this passage is different than any others because this is a first-person account. So some people would say that Hosea actually writes chapter three. Maybe it's the first section and other people have added things to the beginning, but in chapter one, it's a third-person account. Hosea, go and do this. It's like somebody looking into this story, whereas in chapter three, it's more of a first-person, I'm going to do these sorts of things. But still, we have some difficult road ahead of us, uh, and we will read just these five verses in Hosea chapter three, which sets up the whole trajectory of the book in its entirety. This is Hosea chapter three, beginning in verse one. It says, the Lord said to me again, go, love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the people of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley and a measure of wine. 
And I said to her, you must remain as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore. You shall not have intercourse with a man, nor I with you. For the Israelites shall remain many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the Israelites shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall come in awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The word of God for the people of God. The Lord said to me again, go, love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the people of Israel. I posted this verse on Facebook and got some, uh, some comments, just trying to see what you guys thought was interesting about this first verse in chapter three. And it's not actually on the screen, the thing that you guys really thought was, was interesting. However, one person commented that in this passage, just as should be emboldened. It should be uh, brought to the attention because what is at stake here in this chapter is God's instruction for Hosea to go and to love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress. Just a side note, because I know that some of you are super inquisitive. There's lots of discussion as to if this woman is in fact the same woman that was mentioned in chapter one, or if this is Hosea's call to go marry someone else. Scholars, for the most part, believe that this is the same woman in chapter one. He's going to get his wife back. He is not going to get a new wife. However, there's a handful of scholars that think that this is a completely um, different woman. However, here it says, go and love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress. I'll also step over here uh, and just play this game for a second too. It's really difficult finding an English translation of these verses that don't offend most people. When you start talking about whoredom and harlotry, uh, you know, not usually a thing that's, that's talked about here in, in the church, although in this passage, they're, they're, they're out there, okay? So just sympathize with me for a second. Oh, that's got to be tough, Josh. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you. Okay, so go love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress just as the Lord loves the people of Israel. This is the important turn in this chapter and really in this entire book. What God is doing is demonstrating his great love for people through the image of Hosea and his wife and his kids and her unfaithfulness to him. However, there is more to this verse. You can't just embolden this and then go on into what some commentators would say, indulging in sentimental fabulation. Now, isn't that a 50 cent phrase? What it means is commentators and pastors have taken this text and they've gone off into moments of sentimental storytelling, talking about Hosea and how bad he must have felt that his wife left and starting to create narratives for Gomer and what she was going through, and what the kids were going through, all this stuff. And it just, it's not in the text there's not enough to go on there, but commentators and pastors have really indulged in this sentimental fabulation. I love that. Whenever somebody is like doing you dirty, you say, you know what? You get out of here with that fabulation. Okay, just try to sneak that into your casual conversation this week and then let me know how that, how that turns out for you. Um, but there's... there's uh, over-sentimental versions of this particular passage. And we are going to try to do our due diligence to avoid that 
to some extremes. I know why pastors would engage in this. I know why commentators would engage in this too. I know why Francine Rivers would engage in this as well, because it is good storytelling. It's captivating. It, it can bring people in. When you start talking about Hosea going after his adulterous wife and bringing her back and buying her and paying for her to come back in relationship just as God goes after and pays that price for us and brings us. It preaches really well, doesn't it? It could get us excited perhaps, but we need to first cover our historical critical basis. And all God's people said, come on, man, can't you just, can't, can't you just fabulate a little bit? tonight. I don't want to go there because there's things in this passage that I think on the back end will help us to appreciate what's going on in this passage and what we can take away from it without going into this um, hypothesized storytelling and psychoanalysis of what uh, Hosea and Gomer must have felt like. The Lord said to me again, go and love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the people of Israel. And if you want to really get into the historical critical stuff, that last little bit there, though the Israelites turn to other gods and they love raisin cakes. I don't know if that struck you as odd when I'm reading that and you're just waiting to say the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Raisin cakes can just get out of my face. They will lead you straight to hell. Do not engage with the raisin cakes. I don't, weird story. When I was a freshman in Bible college, I was taking an Old Testament class. For those of you that don't know, I have a PhD in Old Testament studies. But in my Old Testament class, it was at 7.30 in the morning, and I was just like, I do not, mm -mm, I cannot, I will not. And this guy was about as old as the hills, and he gave us all this assignment to go and look at the historical background of these prophets. Doesn't that sound like something that I would just love to do? Not at all. My assigned passage was this, and I remember thinking about raisin cakes, and I'm like, what? Bro, no. 7.30, uh-uh. I'm not, I don't know. So like, I, I didn't engage in that. I just thought that was strange. But here, there's, there's historical critical um, importance to this. It's not just the fact that raisins might very well be the most disgusting fruit of all time. That's just me. Okay. I'm going to back up over here, but there's other, um, there's other historical critical markers in this passage. The one commentator says, if you're going to analyze the raisin cakes, and this is not what the sermon is about people, we are not going to leave here and be blessed and say, now we know about raisin cakes and we can go win the world for Jesus. You know, try to incorporate that in your evangelical conversations. No, but he says it's an interesting conundrum trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. And scholars have, have thrown out a couple of different ideas. One would be um, looking at the same term that's used in the book of Song of Songs. You might know it as Song of Solomon. It's a collection of, of love poetry between a man and a woman, and it gets pretty spicy. We will not be doing a sermon series on Song of Songs anytime soon. Although one pastor said, I know how about his church. He said, I know how we can double attendance if we just do a sermon series on the book of Song of Songs. And they did. And the church like blew up like from 1,000 to 5,000 people just wanted to be in the house of God hearing about 
love, love poems, which strikes me as, as strange, and raisins. So here it says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. This is a, a passage where the woman seems to be taking the lead here. She says, I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. I don't know if any of you are churched people, but there's a song that little kids sing. Um, from this text, which is very strange to me. Verse five, strengthen me with raisins, she says, refresh me with apples for I am faint with love. Some scholars have um, hypothesized that these raisins or these raisin cakes are an aphrodisiac used in some sort of uh, romantic adventures, which might fit our context in Hosea because as we learned a few weeks ago, that there was um, a cultic practice where the people the women would give themselves in prostitution to um, the men of the area and really in response to the God that they were serving. Baal as the fertility God who would impregnate the land by bringing rain and allowing life to, to be raised up from the ground. These women would act that out. So some people said this is either an aphrodisiac or some, maybe some kind of, it's, it's, it's in that same vein. One scholar says that raisin cakes are sweetness made of pressed grapes. It's a delicacy distributed at cultic feasts. That basically means a setting like this. Um, anytime you hear this cultic term, it means like a worship sort of setting. Israel's love for such delicacies is put into parallel to turning to other gods because they mistakenly thought that the good things of the fertile land were the gifts of the Baal. So some people think it's an aphrodisiac. Some people think that this is like a code word for Israel just wanted the good things, the best of the best, the swankiest stuff. They wanted to go into worship and get not lemonade and a cookie. They wanted caviar and they wanted raisin cakes and they wanted like the best of the best of the best. And they thought that Baal, that foreign God that they were worshiping or incorporating into their worship would give it to them. Uh, there is obviously like a worship tie for this word. And this is the only other time in the Bible other than Hosea and the song that this word occurs. This is 2 Samuel 6. After he, that is David, had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites. So here we have this passage where people are again in a worship context and they're getting pieces of bread and cakes of raisins and dates. I used to go to this church and every time they'd have a first time visitor, they'd have this moment in the service to say, has anyone, uh, is this anyone's first time here in church? And if a person raised their hand, they would come over with a clipboard where you'd fill out your information and they'd give you a loaf of freshly baked bread, sort of like this. I, I, they weren't going for the, the sexiness. There was no like aphrodisiac. It was just like, here, thanks for coming here. Have a loaf of this freshly made Amish friendship bread. I don't remember what it was, but it could very well have been that. Now, if there is a tie to these cakes in a worship setting, there's other texts in the Bible that move us beyond just going and eating these cakes into a more um, seedy sort of uh, element. One scholar again says there is scattered evidence for baked goods as religious symbols. For example, Jeremiah's critique of his contemporaries includes reference to baked goods of a certain type or maybe shape that's intended to honor the goddess known as the queen of heaven. Okay, so now we're getting into this. In Hosea, he's saying these people have turned away from me. They've gone after foreign gods and they love raisin cakes. 
And there's an underlying historical critical thread that would say these people are going after other gods and they're engaging in pagan worship by maybe doing some of the same stuff that we see in the book of Jeremiah. For example, the women of this congregation said, when we burned incense to the queen of heaven, not something that Israel's God wants them to do. Not something where they are including other, other gods. That wasn't uh, what God wanted for them to do in their worship setting. We burned incense to this queen of heaven. We poured out drink offerings to her and did not our husbands know that we were making cakes impressed with her image. This is where it gets super interesting. And I'm sorry that this is like, this is the worst introduction of all time. I know that. Okay. Remember, I'm just trying to make good on my uh, failure to live up to my nerddom in my freshman year of Bible college. I'm bringing it all full circle right here, but check this out. That friends is an ancient terracotta cake mold that is found in this time period where Israelite people were baking cakes that were in the shape of this queen of heaven and dedicating their offerings to her. Is that not really cool that we see this archaeological stuff that's, that's informing how we read the Bible when, when it's saying in the text that they're loving, they're going after other gods and they love the raisin cakes. They love perhaps to offer these cakes to a foreign goddess to incorporate her into their worship, to go beyond just serving Yahweh and now including other pagan gods into their circle. And this is the thing that God is getting incensed over. Hosea, go after your wife, your adulterous wife who has left you just as I, the Lord of Israel, still remain tied to this people that have done me wrong over and over. This people that go after other gods, this people that make sacrifices to these other foreign gods. The Lord said to me again, go love a woman just who uh, love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the people of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Now, okay, just when we read the Bible, we just go right over the top and there's so much underneath the surface that can bring a bit more understanding of what's going on. Why are these people loving raisin cakes? And what does that mean? It's, 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 um, pointing in the direction of their commitment to other foreign gods. But the bottom line of this first verse is this Hosea's love for his adulterous wife. It mirrors God's experience of loving idolatrous, adulterous Israel. God's love is a perseverant love. We sing stuff like he is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane and I am a tree bending beneath waves of wind and mercy. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, I've kind of turned that into a weird, weird little ditty there. But like we sing about the love of God, but we we can we can benefit from these images in the same way that you have seen Hosea going after his wife that has left him. That has committed adultery that has been unfaithful to their marriage covenant. This is the way that God loves us, loves, loves us and is committed to us. It is a perseverant love. It is a love that will not let us Go. In the storyline of Hosea, chapter 3, it seems to pick up after chapter 1. So Hosea is married to Gomer. They have some kids. At some point later, 
at some point later, this all picks up. In chapter one, God says, go, Hosea, take for yourself a wife of harlotry or whoredom and have children of harlotry. It doesn't mean that these are children born out of their uh, marriage it means that they, like their mom, will be children who go after other gods. For the land, it says, commits great whoredom or harlotry by forsaking the Lord. And now in chapter 3, it says, go love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress. There's no evidence to see that in this first union, in this first marriage in chapter 1, that Gomer has cheated on Hosea. There's no evidence that would say that, that their marriage covenant has been broken. He marries this woman. We don't know anything about their relationship. We don't really know anything about the dinnertime conversations that they have or that they don't have. We don't know anything about their developing love over time. We don't know anything about how they taught their kids or how they um, practiced discipline. We don't know much about their preschool learning. We don't know anything about these people and their family. But here in chapter 3, what we learn is there has been some fracture in the relationship and God is saying to Hosea, go and love this woman. It's interesting in chapter one, it says, go and take for yourself a wife. And in chapter three, it says, go and don't take, go love. This is a, a word that occurs four times in a very short amount of time. Go and love this woman, even though she has a lover, a companion, someone that she has ditched you for, Hosea. You go and you love her. She's an adulteress. You go and you get her. And the text continues, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley. And the NRSV says, and a measure of wine. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's another measurement of barley. So really, it's I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley and a lethak of barley, a smaller division of, of barley. In the Old Testament, uh, apparently, a, uh, the price of a person was 30 shekels of silver. We learn this from the book of Exodus. We don't know a lot about what Hosea is going to do. It does seem as though he doesn't have a lot of uh, money. He doesn't have a lot of means. He is going, and he's going to buy his woman. We don't know the, the situation in which that arises. One scholar says, Hosea is obedient to God's command, and he purchases Gomer. It's not clear from whom. Perhaps it was her lover. We don't know where this money is going. Perhaps it was a slave master. Perhaps when Gomer left, she was so sick of Hosea that she goes and she just offers herself to the highest bidder and becomes an indentured slave to this person. And Hosea is then going to buy her. We don't know what's happening. She may have sold herself into debt slavery. She may have become a kept woman. In either case, she has been reduced to a commodity. She could be bought for a price. And the Bible doesn't tell us anything about her story, but wouldn't you like to hear it? Where is she going? What is she doing? Why is she leaving? When, when Hosea shows up to get her, is she happy? Is she sad? Is she disappointed? We don't know these things, and we can kind of sneak over to the side and say, that's not the point of the story. But man, our human minds want to know these sorts of things. At the very end of this passage, we do see, though, that Hosea is buying his wife again. In chapter 1, in the ancient Near East, when you go to take a wife, you don't just show up and romance her. You show up with the bride price. 
You show up to pay the dad of the woman that you are taking away. And ostensibly, Hosea did this at some point to be in relationship with this woman that God has called him to be in relationship with. He shows up to her parents, whoever they were, whatever is is going on there, and pays this price, takes her home, has some kids that are a sign act to the people to say, God is kind of upset with the trajectory in which we are going. And at some point in this relationship, she leaves him and Hosea goes back to find her and pays for her again, just as the Lord has loved Israel, even though they go after these other gods and love the raisin cakes. We can't read into that or else we too, like these other pastors and commentators, would indulge in the sentimental fabulation, the storytelling that we don't really have any sort of concrete evidence for, even though it is so tempting. And the parallels are so clear. All I can hear this week as I was studying this passage is is Paul's word to us. You have been bought with a price by Jesus. And here in this passage, we see some of this being being played out, although we don't have those hooks. And what uh, Hosea says to her is he says, then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. This is the New International Version, and it sounds like what Hosea is bargaining for is, come home with me. Do not be intimate anymore with any other person. Be with me. Some people go back to chapter 2 and say that this is Hosea kind of building a hedge in her way where she can't escape anymore, not like in a crazy sadistic sort of way but keeping her away from the people that she has been going after to be in relationship, perhaps to resolve and reconcile the hurt that they both have felt. Gomer ostensibly has felt that in some way. We don't know why. And Hosea in this, uh, in her leaving must have felt something you would assume. But then it goes on and he says, do not be intimate with any man and I will behave the same way toward you. And the, uh, the sense of that text seems to be, Listen, Gomer, if you don't go and hook up with anybody else, I won't go and hook up with anybody else either. I'd like to think, though, that this crazy prophet didn't have a lot of ladies lined up. You know what I mean? He was sort of out there. If we've learned anything about Jose, I don't know if he was the ladies' man. But still, this seems to be the sense of this. However, a better translation would be, Gomer, stay with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, nor I with you. Gomer, you can't hook up with these people, and you also aren't going to hook up with me. Some scholars have have posited that this might be, again, an, an initiation where they can repair this relationship between them, where you just don't go back into old habits, but you you earn the love back. You earn the love and the trust back over a period of time. We don't know if that's the case, but Hosea takes a turn and, again, is always giving an image of what this means in the same way that the wife is going to come home with Hosea and not be intimate with anybody else and not be intimate with him. The text goes on, for the Israelites shall remain many days without a king or a prince, without a sacrifice or a pillar, without an ephod or a teraphim. There's some words here that we don't know. The first two are pretty easy. For the Israelites shall remain many days without a royal institution, without any sort of king, without any sort of kingdom. This is what is going to happen to them because of their unfaithfulness, because of what they have been doing, the choices that they have made. It also goes on and says, 
They will remain many days without sacrifice or pillar. These are cultic terms. These are worship terms. There's going to be no sacrificial system, and there's also going to be no pillar. These would be sacred stones, uh, and some people would say that they're stones erected at shrines to symbolize a male deity, often in conjunction with a female deity. These are things that are outlawed throughout the Old Testament, and what Hosea seems to be saying here is the Israelites are going to remain many days without a royal institution and without a jacked-up religious institution. They won't have a king, they won't have a kingdom, and they also won't have this messed-up worship space where they're incorporating all this pagan and foreign stuff and bringing it into the space. It's not just about sacrifice. It's about sacrifice, but then also these cultic gods that they are bringing in, Baal and his, his consort, like these people that uh, Israel at the time was worshiping. And also they're going to be without ephod or teraphim. The ephod is a priestly garment. Nobody really knows what's it, what it's all about, but some people would say that it has like this pocket. And inside this pocket, you have the Urim and the Thummim. And these are like these dice that you throw. Because when you have a big question for God, you treat it like an eight ball. You ask it a yes or no question, and then you cast the dice. And if it lands on all black, then you know. And if it lands on all white, then you know. Like it's, this is what the priests were doing in this moment. They were casting lots. They were trying to figure out these things. The teraphim are these household gods, again, where people would, would ask them questions and, and want to, uh, it's called divination, where they would try to get an answer. So if you're wanting, or, uh, wanting an answer to the question of, should I go to grad school? And then you cast the Urim and the Thummim. And if it lands in a certain way, then you know. You say, should I marry this person? And then you cast this stuff or you, you, you pray to your household gods asking for these things. And Hosea is saying, you will not have that anymore. You're going to remain many days in the same way that Hosea is not hooking up with his wife. There's a moment where they separate, they're in relationship, but doesn't go back to how it was. Israel is also going to be in a moment in time where there's a separation, where they're not going to have the things that they used to have. And then afterward, the Israelites shall return, it says, and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall come in awe. You could also translate that. They will come in fear or they will come to obey the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And Hosea is pushing us beyond his context, saying a punishment is coming. Because of Israel's faithfulness, because of their love for the raisin cakes, because they keep leaving these people, a punishment is coming. But in the latter days, there is something out there somewhere where God will make good on all of this. Now, for us, I think there's a couple things that we can take away from this. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer says, Hosea's experience with Gomer does not teach him about God. Hear this. Rather, Hosea's experience with God teaches him about Gomer. The way that we read this, this story is also similar. It's not Hosea and Gomer teaching us about God. It is God teaching us about Hosea and Gomer. Only because of the love of God, she says, for Israel, does Hosea seek out and buy back his adulterous wife. We don't get any sort of commentary from Hosea. In chapter one, it says, go and take a wife. And in the next verse, it says, so Hosea went and he took a wife. In chapter three, it says, go and love a woman. So then it goes on to say, so I went and I bought. Hosea is just acting in obedience because of the relationship that he has in this moment with God. His action, she says, is not the result of human compassion, but obedience to the divine 
will. This is not a romantic way of spinning love in this passage. This is not um, a a good Christian romance novel where the, the fiery passion of Hosea is burning so much towards his wife. What seems to be taking place is Hosea is committed beyond everything else to God and whatever God is asking him to do, he will go and do it. Two more scholars, and if, if, if it's too much for you to look at the screen and see all the words and just look up into the space and uh, appreciate the architecture, as I read this to you, Hosea is commanded to love. It's an instruction which people who think that love is the spontaneous expression of feeling find impossible. And in our culture, and I don't think this is unique to our culture, but even beyond that, sometimes we are contingent upon love being the feeling that is guiding us, not the commitment or the action towards the love that we express. He continues, in scripture, love is always a command. Put that on a Hallmark card and let's give that to our people on Valentine's Day. (laughs) No? Love is always a command. Love is an action in obedience to the word of Yahweh. The love of God, he continues at the bottom, the love of God is not natural, nor is human love. It is unreasonable. What we're learning in this book of Hosea is as he's going after this adulterous wife, there is no sense in that. There is no reason or rationality in that beyond the fact that God has told him to go And to do this throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel going after other gods. We see them loving the raisin cakes and all of the imagery that is associated with that. We see how wayward they are and how recalcitrant they are and how hard hearted they are towards any of this. And there is no reason and no rationality behind God's commitment to them when they keep moving away from him. When they go in the opposite direction direction. It is completely and utterly unreasonable, as we hear from Francis Anderson and David Noel Freeman. What we can do, perhaps, in this story, without getting into sentimental fabulations, we can at least look at what's happening and say, we too, like Hosea, have a call to love people, to love, some might argue, the unlovable, to love the people that it does not seem reasonable and rational for us to go after them and to love them. But yet, because God so loves us, we must go and love people in a similar way. We have this calling as Hosea had to go after people, to buy them back, if you will. But that is only based on God's never-ending love for us. Now, I am no scholar of the human uh, psyche, but I do know that there's people in this room and beyond that struggle with the idea that God is concerned about you and that God loves you based on usually your background, your experience, and your past actions. You say things like, there's no way on earth that God could love this because of all the things that I have done to show myself, how, to show him how unfaithful I am. And in this passage, what you get is a picture, a striking image of how untrue that is. In the same way that Hosea goes after his faithless wife, 
God goes after his people. Whatever it is that you're carrying with you into this space, whatever it is that you're carrying with you in this exact moment, I'm hopeful that you can hear the truth of even at the most unreasonable and irrational moment that anyone would choose to love you, God chooses to love you. And he has demonstrated that through his son, Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that he makes for us. We talk about this often. We have done our worst to him, and he says, I will take it, I will carry it, and I will do away with it because I do not want to give up on this. And while I don't want to read into this passage, whatever it looks like for Hosea to go and to find his wife and to say, I want you back, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how broken you think this is, I want you back in my life, we can heal. We can make this right. I don't think the pastors and commentators are so far off that there's whispers of a Jesus sort of moment where whatever it is that we have done, he might say something similar to what we see being played out in Hosea, even if you have gone so far away, even if you have committed spiritual adultery. I want you back. And I'm here to win you over. I'm hopeful that tonight, wherever you guys are, that that can be something that you hold on to, that, that can be something that fuels you as you go, not only in how it transforms you, but in how it transforms the relationships that we have with other people. Just like Hosea, we too are called to love people beyond reason and rationality. And even though it is difficult, I'm hopeful that because God has loved us so much that we can step into those difficult relationships. Perhaps it's with family members. Perhaps it's with friends. Perhaps it's with people that have hurt you and wronged you. Perhaps we can just walk into those sorts of situations and hope for healing, pray for reconciliation, and hope to see Jesus in action in us to demonstrate again the great lengths that God will go to bring his people back. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.